Well, someone comes to you and says, I've got good news and bad news. How many of you want the bad news first? Let me see your hands. Okay, how many of you want the good news first? Let me see your hands. Same as the last service. Almost everybody wants the bad news first. I guess you want to end with the good news. I'm like you. I want the bad news and then I want the good news. Have you ever had someone come to you and say, though, I've got bad news for you, but you got to promise you won't get mad. You ever had that happen? It's like, well, it depends, right? I don't know. I don't know if I can make that promise. Like if the ranch is missing in my takeout order, I'm going to be pretty upset. If you burn my house down, I'm going to be kind of upset. Okay. But if you forget my ranch, man, I don't know if I can make that promise. I don't know if I can make, I don't know if I can make the promise that I won't be mad about that. You know, oftentimes it's, it takes embracing the bad news to get to the good. It takes embracing the bad news to experience the, the, the health or to go further or the healing that we need sometimes. Like it, it takes embracing the bad news. It takes owning it so that we can fix it, so that we can be healed. The same thing is true spiritually sometimes. You can only go so far in your relationship with God without studying the scripture without the community of believers, without confessing your sin and repenting and turning from that sin. You know, it's oftentimes it's on the other side of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, acknowledging your sin, confessing your sin and repenting from sin. It's on the other side of that, like discomfort. It's on the other side of that, that there is growth and further revelation power, freedom, and joy. It comes through embracing the bad news, taking it, owning it, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, turning from that sin, repenting from that sin. Let me show you what I'm talking about. You got your Bible, go to Daniel chapter nine. Daniel chapter nine. You're gonna see this morning that Daniel is going to confess sin. He's gonna deal with the bad news and it results in greater revelation from God. You can only go so far without confession and repentance and dealing with the sin that's in your life or in the life of your family or in the life of your community. And you'll see more about what I'm talking about here in just a second. Daniel chapter nine. We're in a series called Kings and Kingdoms. Let me just give you some of the major players real quick. I don't have time to catch you up. Uh, so if you need to catch up with the series, uh, jump on our app, our podcast, YouTube, whatever, and catch up. All of the previous chapters are there. We're going verse by verse through the book of Daniel. And we find ourselves in Daniel nine this morning. Daniel and his friends, uh, most people know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are captives in the nation of Babylon. Ba Babylon has come. Daniel Daniel 1 tells us by the will, by the sovereignty of God, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against Judah, wiped out Jerusalem and took the people of Judah, some captives into captivity. Some of those are Daniel and his friends who are in the extended royal family. Persia takes over. You've got leaders like Darius and Cyrus who lead the, the empire of Persia. And so our friends, Daniel and his buds find themselves in captivity in the empire of Persia. And so those are some of the, the, the players, the major players in the book of Daniel. We've also said there's the spirit of Babylon, the SOB, the SOB, the spirit of Babylon, who's been at work from the very beginning, was at work in the snake who tempted Eve to take of the, the fruit from the, the, the tree. It's been at work in the, the building of the, the, the tower of Babel. It's at work here in Daniel. It's at work uh, in the very end times. 
Revelation teaches us where it's the spirit of Babylon that wages war. This is a satanic demonic spirit that wages war against the people of God and against God himself and is ultimately defeated when Jesus returns. So this, this spirit of Babylon that's always at work. And so we've said the book of Daniel kind of gives us a peek behind the curtain into this battle. Paul tells us in Ephesians six, this unseen spiritual battle in the spiritual realm for your soul and my soul and the souls of our kids and the souls of our grandkids. It, it kind of gives us a peek behind the curtain into this unseen battle. And so we said, because of that, Daniel isn't about just about what happened. It's about what always happens. It's about what is happening today. It's about the war that's waging for your heart and my heart today. And it's about the war that is being waged against God and his people forever. And so it's about what always happens. It's about what is going to happen. And we've said that the scripture is all about being faithful worshipers of Jesus. It's not about practical steps to better living in your best life now. And that's kind of what you find out when you read through the scripture, when you, when you read it verse by verse, or when you preach it verse by verse and chapter by chapter, you get, you begin to learn. This is all about Jesus. That's what we said last week. This is all about the worship of Jesus. And so the book of Daniel is going to help us be faithful worshipers of Jesus, not just today, but in those last days that I told you that I believe we are in. But even if you don't see that, even if you don't believe we're in the last days, that's okay. Jesus told us to always be ready to always be watchful for his return. But we would all agree that regardless of the day, regardless of the age, the time that we find ourselves in, we want to be, we need to be faithful worshipers of Jesus if that's who we claim to be. And so we need the inspired word of God, not inspirational messages that, that always make us feel good or give us practical tips to better living and to our best life now. No, we need the inspired word of God that we might be faithful worshipers of Jesus. So. Let's turn to Daniel chapter nine. We're gonna start then in verse one. I invite you to follow along with me in your copy of the scripture on our app as well. The verses are there, the points are there, and I've got a nifty timeline for you with all kinds of dates and things we're gonna look at here in just a little bit. And uh, you can even zoom in on that timeline because it's small, there's a lot on there. We spent hours developing that timeline this week. We made it from scratch. And uh, you can actually hold your kind of thumb down on it and save it to your camera roll so that you can take it with you or you can email yourself the notes and you'll get it in those notes. But follow along with me. Daniel chapter nine, starting in verse one, it was the first year of the reign of Darius the Medes. So we're in the Persian empire now. And um, the son of Asuhurus, I don't know. I, I can't say that. Don't, don't, don't expect me to say that right. Cause I, I, I don't know. So he became the king of the Babylonians or this area, the Babylonian area. During the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, learned from reading the word of the Lord as revealed to Jeremiah the prophet, that Jerusalem must lie desolate for 70 years. Jeremiah predicted this Babylonian captivity. You read Jeremiah 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, you'll learn about this prophecy that Jeremiah gave to the people of Israel and Judah to Jerusalem and said, hey, listen, if you don't turn from your sin and idolatry, Babylon is coming. Jeremiah prophesied it before it ever happened. Babylon is coming, is going to wipe us out, going to destroy us, is going to inflict the punishment and the discipline of God for us, for our idolatry. And so Jeremiah is predicting that Judah is going to go into captivity into Babylon, but after 70 years, they would return to the land. The, the, the Jews would return to their homeland, to Jerusalem. Jerusalem at this point is still in ruins, lying desolate until we learn 
Israel experiences the full measure of God's discipline. So what Daniel is realizing here and what you should see too is that God does not lie. What he has promised to us in his word, what he has told us into his word will come to pass. And Daniel is realizing God didn't lie. God told us in the covenant that he made with Moses and his people through the prophets that he would judge us, that he would punish us for sin and idolatry and for breaking this covenant, for breaking the law. So God has not lied. He is punishing the wicked. He is punishing sinners. He is punishing his people for breaking his law. And Daniel is seeing this and he's realizing this and he's reading the prophet Jeremiah, which is the word of the Lord, Daniel says. So, so Daniel is saying, Jeremiah is scripture. It's Bible. This is the word of God. And Daniel's reading this about this 70 year exile. And he's realizing that this happened in 605 BC when Daniel was a young teenage boy. 605 BC was the year when the captives were first taken by Babylon. And so it's reasonable to assume that this is the beginning for the 70 year captivity period. Cyrus issues a decree releasing the captives in 538, 537 BC and the exiles then returned to Jerusalem shortly after that. And so Daniel is studying Jeremiah's prophecy. He's realizing, hey, we're coming to the end of this 70 year captivity period. It's drawing to a close. And so then he reads Jeremiah 29 verse 11. And you know what he does? He doesn't say, Oh God, 2911. Wow. You've got a plan for me. Uh, you've got a, a future for me. You're going to prosper me. I'm going to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous because that's your plan. No, <laughs> no, that's not what he does because that's not really what Jeremiah 2911 is saying. And if you've been with us for a while, you know, in our twisted series, we broke down that verse and now we're kind of back to it again. Jeremiah has read Jeremiah 29 and all the previous chapters. He's read the word of God in context. He's reading Jeremiah 29. He's realizing the 70 year exile is about to end and he prays a prayer of confession. You're going to see it here in just a second. He pours out his heart to God, confessing their sin. He gets to Jeremiah 29, verse 10, after everything he's read, and he's pouring out his heart to God, and he reads verse 11, and it gives him some hope that there's going to be, watch this, a pardon after the punishment. When the punishment is fulfilled, when the righteousness and the justice of God has been met for sin, there will be a pardon, and God will restore us. He will forgive us. It kind of changes the meaning of Jeremiah 29, 11, when you read it in context. And when you see how other people read the prophet Jeremiah and how they interpret it. So Daniel, watch this. He believes after reading Jeremiah, he believes in the reality of predictive prophecy. Daniel believes in predictive prophecy prophecy. Jeremiah had foretold the end of this exilic period 70 years in advance. And Daniel fully expects this period to be realized, to be completed, to be fulfilled very soon. Daniel didn't symbolize the 70 years. He took the prophecy literally. And I believe this is the safest method for believers today, as we study the prophecy of future events, we interpret them literally as much as possible. When possible, as much as possible, we try to interpret the prophecy 
literally, and I'll tell you more about that just here, here in just a second, but Daniel studying Jeremiah and it causes him to turn to God with prayer and confession. It, it just, it changes the meaning of Jeremiah 29, 11 when you read it in context. And when you see how Daniel responds to reading the prophet Jeremiah, specifically Jeremiah chapter 29. All right, let's keep going. Verse three. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and fasting. I wore rough burlap and sprinkled myself with ashes. This is humility. He's read the prophet Jeremiah. He's read Jeremiah 29, 11 about God having a plan for him, which literally reads, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. What God is saying there, the literal translation of that is I've got a plan for you after this punishment. I'm not going to totally wipe you out. You're going to be punished. You're going to be disciplined for your sin, but there's going to be a pardon after your punishment. And Daniel reads this and he responds in humility. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. This was just a, a, a customary thing that the people of God would do to show their humility before God, their brokenness before God because of their sin. And so verse four, I prayed to the Lord, my God, and confessed, oh Lord, you are a great and awesome God. You always fulfill your covenant and keep your promises of unfailing love to those who obey you and obey your commands. But we have sinned and done wrong. We have rebelled against you and scorned your commands and regulations. We have refused to listen to your servants, the prophets who spoke on your authority to our kings and princes and ancestors and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are in the right. Daniel says you are just and righteous. You are good because of what you've done. You are a holy and righteous God because you have punished our sin. That means you are a good and just judge. And so Daniel says, you have been in the right. You punished us. You brought Babylon against us. We've been captives in this land. And you, God, are in the right. We are in the wrong. But as you see, Daniel says, our faces are covered with shame. We are ashamed of who, what we've done and how we've acted in our rebellion against you. You are in the right. This is true, Daniel says, of all of us, including the people of Judah and Jerusalem and all of Israel scattered near and far, wherever you have driven us because of our disloyalty to you. Oh Lord, we and our kings, princes and ancestors, we are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. But the Lord, our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. Jeremiah 29, 11, you're gonna punish us. You're right in it, but God, you are merciful and you will forgive us. Remember, he's reading Jeremiah and that's the, the basis by which he's offering up this, this prayer. All of Israel has disobeyed your instructions. We have turned away refusing to listen to your voice. So now the solemn curses and judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God have been poured down on us because of our sin. You have kept your word and done to us and our rulers exactly as you warned. God does not lie. Daniel is saying, you punished, you told us you were going to, and you did it. Our days, as we learn Weeks ago, our days are numbered. The door on the ark is going to close. The fire is going to rain down on Sodom one day. Jesus is going to return one day and punish wickedness and sinners forever. God does not lie. You warned us and we didn't believe your warning, but you have come through on your promise, Daniel is saying. Never has there been such a disaster as has happened in Jerusalem. Every curse written against us in the law of Moses has come true. 
Yet we have refused to seek mercy from the Lord our God by turning from our sin and recognizing his truth. We have not humbled ourselves. We have not confessed our sin and turned from our sin and acknowledged your truth. We've been doing our own thing, our own way, following our own ways, our own opinions. We have not acknowledged your truth. Therefore, the Lord has brought upon us the disaster he prepared. The Lord our God was right to do all of these things for we did not obey him. You are just God, he's saying. You are just, you are good because of what you've done to us. Oh Lord our God, you brought lasting honor to your name by rescuing your people from Egypt in a great display of power, but we have sinned and are full of wickedness. You rescued us, God, but we turned our back on you. You were faithful to us, he's saying, but we were unfaithful to you. In view of all your faithful mercies, Lord, please turn your furious anger away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. Again, he's, he's read Jeremiah 29, 11. You, you've punished us for our sin. Now, please, God, as you promise, forgive us and turn your anger away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. All the neighboring nations mock Jerusalem. They mock us and your people because of our sins and the sins of our ancestors. Oh, our God, hear your servant's prayer. Listen as I plead for your own sake, Lord, for your sake, for your name, he's saying, for your righteousness, for your glory, God. Not for us and not because of us, but God, for your sake, Lord, smile again on your desolate sanctuary. Oh my God, lean down and listen to me. Open your eyes and see our despair. See how your city, the city that bears your name, lies in ruins. We make this plea, not because we deserve help. We don't deserve it. We, we don't deserve Jeremiah 29, 11. We don't deserve the, the pardon after the punishment. We, we don't deserve this, God. So you're not doing this because we've earned it or we've deserved it but because of your mercy. That's grace, receiving what you did not deserve, what you do not earn, what you are not owed. Daniel is saying, we, we have earned this punishment. You, you, you owed it to us. But now that it's been fulfilled, now that the punishment has been met, now that your wrath for our sin has been satisfied, God, forgive us, have mercy on us, show grace to us. Oh Lord, verse 19, here, Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and act for your own sake. Do not delay. Oh my God, for your people and your city, bear your name. Notice in this prayer at the very beginning, it starts off with adoration. God, you are a great and awesome God. Then he moves to confession. For quite a while, Daniel's confessing their sin and their shame and the righteousness and justice of God. And then at the very end, Daniel cries out to God for mercy, for help, that's intercession. So oftentimes when we talk about praying, if you've been to a corporate prayer gathering on Wednesdays with us or in any of the prayer groups that we'll talk about, maybe you've heard it before, the acts model of prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and then supplication. Supplication means that's, that's where you ask for things, that's intercession. When you're praying about the needs in your life or the needs in your family, friends, coworkers, neighbor, when you're praying for them, that, that's intercession, that's supplication. And so we, we've said before, hey, we don't go into the presence of God. We don't start off asking. We, we, we adore God. We, we praise him. And that's what Daniel's doing here. He, he starts with adoration. Then he moves to confession. A, C, that's the Acts model. A, C, confession, thanksgiving, that's the T, supplication. That's intercession. And that's asking for help. 
And so, so Daniel, in a way, he's kind of following this model, adoration, confession, and then intercession. And Daniel, in his prayer, lists six different ways. He describes six different ways they sinned against God. He uses six different kind of ways or terms to, to describe this sin. He says, we've sinned, we've done wrong, we've been wicked, we've rebelled, we've turned away from God's commands and laws. We didn't listen to him. We didn't acknowledge his truth. We didn't listen to his prophets. Now, now what is this? What is Daniel referring to? What, what, what is all this sin that earned for them this 70 years of punishment? Well, broadly speaking, it was idolatry. It was worshiping other gods in the place of the one true God. It was adopting some of the, the practices and the religions of the people and the customs and the cultures that they found themselves among. And so they would begin to, to, to set up idols and, and worship the, the gods, lowercase g, of the peoples that they found themselves among. So, so they were idolatrous. They would, they would marry people who, who were not Hebrew or who were not followers of the one true God, didn't worship the one true God. And that was against the law. And then finally, and probably most specifically, here's what Israel was guilty of. And here's probably specifically what Daniel is referring to. This 70 years of punishment, of exile, of being captives in Babylon is because of the sin of working the land on the seventh year that they were not supposed to work it for 490 years. So in the law of Moses, in the covenant that God made with Israel, every seventh year, they were to not work the land. They were to let the, the land rest. So you'd work it for six, and then you would take the seventh year off from working the land, right? Uh, another picture of this was the Sabbath. You, you would work six days, and on Saturday, if you were a Jew, you would take the Sabbath, which was a time of rest. It was a time of worship. And Israel disobeyed God's command to let the land rest on that seventh year. So over 490 years, if every seventh year you're supposed to let the land rest, how many years do they owe God? 70 years. And so that is specifically why Israel is being punished for 70 years. They owe God 70 years because they would not let the land rest. Here's what was happening. That's on the surface. Here's why that was a part of the covenant that God made with Israel. In the Sabbath and in the seventh year that they were supposed to let the land rest in your heart, what you're saying is, God, we're gonna do things your way. We're gonna trust you. We're going to believe that you are going to provide for us. And so we are going to rest on this day. We're gonna let the land rest for that year. And we're going to trust you. And so in your heart, that's what you were saying. That's what you were acknowledging. God, we're going to honor you. We're going to worship you. We're going to do things your way. And so what God, because he looks past the outwards and he, he looks right into your heart, what, what God was seeing in their hearts was a lack of trust. You're not trusting in me. You're greedy. When you get right down to it, they were working too much. They worked too much. They were greedy. They thought they got, had to provide for themselves. They wanted to work the land. They were scared that if they didn't work the land, then they wouldn't have enough. It was greed. 
It was a lack of trust. And this is a very serious thing to God. It's why God made as a part of the covenant, the Sabbath. It's one of the 10 commandments. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That day is a day of rest. It's a day of worship. And so Israel in their idolatry did not obey this command to let the land rest. They were greedy. They didn't trust God and it angered God. And so let's just stop for a second and kind of apply this to us. We don't necessarily have a Sabbath. We, we have Sunday as Christians. We worship on Sunday because of the resurrection of Jesus from the grave on a Sunday. So that's when the Christians started worshiping. That's what became their Sabbath, if you will. And so what do you think it communicates to God when we don't come together with the body of Christ? We're not, we're not under the law, but what do you think it communicates to God? Let, let's just say when you miss more than you make it. Let's not, let's not get too religious here. Let's, let's, let's just say 50% of the time. What, what do you think that communicates to God? What do you think God, how, how do you think God receives that? When we don't rest, when we don't give this day to the Lord, when we don't come together and worship him. I mean, God took it pretty serious with Israel. You, do you think he's changed? The, the scripture says God does not change. So what does it communicate in our hearts when we don't rest, when we don't stop working, that we might come together and worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? What I think it communicates based on what I'm reading and seeing here is it communicates greed, it communicates a lack of trust, and it communicates our priorities are somewhere else. Uh, it communicates we'd rather be somewhere else. I, I think that's what it communicates. You see, there's something about joining together with the body of Christ and hearing God's word and praying and, and worshiping together. It's like a vaccine against idolatry. And so I think God takes it pretty serious. He did with Israel when they wouldn't stop and rest, when they wouldn't let the land rest. God took it so serious, he, he brought Babylon to take them into captivity for 70 years. For every year, they owed him. Daniel said, our kings, our princes, our fathers, our ancestors, in other words, all the people of our land, we've all turned our backs on God in this way. By not letting the land rest, by not trusting God with that year, Daniel said, we've turned our backs on God. We were unfaithful to you. You have been nothing but faithful to us. We were unfaithful to you. Now, here's what's interesting. This sin of not working the land that seventh year for those 490 years. Daniel and his friends didn't do that. Who did that? Well, that was the generations that came before him. That, that, those were generations of, of Hebrews hundreds of years ago. 
That, that, that would have been Daniel's parents and grandparents and, and, and his great grandparents. I mean, that's who was guilty of this sin specifically. It wasn't Daniel and his generation. They didn't do this, but watch this. They are paying the price for previous generations sin. Daniel in his prayer, here's what's incredible. Daniel is confessing the sin on behalf of his people, not necessarily himself. He's confessing the sin of the generations that came before him. Here's what Daniel knows. God sees us in our individual faith. We have an individual faith in, our, in relationship with Christ. But Daniel knows this. He's a part of a community. Daniel knows, in the words of Paul, we who are many form one body. And so Daniel knows that God deals with the people through representation. And Daniel is guilty of the sin of his people, even if he didn't commit it. Because that's God, how God deals with his people. Israel is in a present state of disgrace that had continued since the days of the Babylonian conquest. Jerusalem is still in ruins at this point and the whole land is virtually desolate. Daniel is emphasizing the fact that Israel's past sins were continuing to bring dishonor upon the nation. And so watch this. Daniel's attitude in the presence of God is not, I didn't do that. God, why are you blaming me and my friends? Why are you blaming my generation? We didn't do that. They did that. My parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, punish them. I didn't do anything. Daniel's not saying, God, why are we talking about something that happened hundreds of years ago? Why? That has no effect on me today. That has no effect on society today. Any of this sound familiar? It should, because I've seen a lot of this over the last year. I didn't do anything. I'm not racist. I didn't do anything. So, so wh why are we talking about something that happened hundreds of years ago? That didn't have any effect on today. <laughs> right. Like something as evil as the racism that happened in our country that happened hundreds of years ago wouldn't continue to have shame and disgrace and have consequences in the here and now. Daniel realizes this, Daniel sees this, that the sin of past generations is affecting him and his people in that day and in that time. And Daniel does not walk into the presence of God or he's not telling his other people, I don't know why we're talking about something that happened hundreds of years ago, I didn't do anything. Why are you blaming me? Don't blame me for something they did. That's not what Daniel's doing. That's not what Daniel's saying here. Daniel knows he's a part of a body. Daniel knows that God deals with his people through representation. And so Daniel, as a representative of his body, of the people of God for hundreds and hundreds of years, he is confessing their sin and he's crying out to God and he is owning this sin, even though it's not really his, it's the sin and it's the punishment of previous generations. Now, before you get upset with me or with God, this is actually great news. And you're like, <laughs> what? How's this great news? It's the best news ever and I'll prove it to you here in just a little bit. 
that God deals with his people like this in a represent, representative fashion is the best news ever. It's the greatest news ever. And I'll prove it to you here in just a little bit. Verse 20, I went on praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, pleading with the Lord, my God for Jerusalem, his holy mountain. Daniel's one of the greatest saints who's ever lived and he's still confessing his own sin and the sin of his people. The, the, the Christian life is a daily, lifelong, daily confession and repentance, confession and repentance. Daniel knows this. And so he's confessing his sin and he's repenting of his sin, even in his old age, even as one of the most holy and righteous men who've ever lived. He's still living a life of confession and repentance. Verse 21, as I was praying, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the earlier vision, came swiftly to me at the time of the evening sacrifice. He explained to me, Daniel, I've come here to give you insight and understanding. The moment you begin praying, a command was given. And now I'm here to tell you what it was, for you are very precious to God. Listen carefully so that you can understand the meaning of your vision. Before Daniel even finished his prayer, God sent an answer. And God says, you are precious to me. You are precious in my sight. I mean, if there was ever an encouragement to pray, here it is right here. That while Daniel was praying, God answered. God heard and answered Daniel's prayer and he answered before he was even finished, Gabriel said. While you were praying, Gabriel said. While you were praying, there was a command that was given. And so I'm here to answer your prayer. So we should pray privately in our closet and we should pray corporately together with the body of Christ. Because when we pray, God hears and he answers because he loves his kids and because you are precious in his sight. Your heavenly father is listening when you pray. How incredible, how incredible is that? God sends an angel to help him understand. And the angel says, I'm gonna give you uh, not only answers to your prayer, but I'm gonna give you a vision and I'm gonna help you understand the meaning of the visions that you have received. So here's what, here, here's what I want you to say. Daniel confesses his sin and what's on the other side of his confession of sin? More revelation, more power, more freedom, more joy, healing. You see, when you embrace the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we don't run from it, but you embrace it and you acknowledge your sin, you humble yourself before God and you acknowledge your sin and you confess it and you ask God to help you turn from that sin, that's, that's repentance. There's always more revelation and freedom and joy and healing than you could ever imagine on the other side of that. But it takes embracing the bad news to get to the good news. Verse 24, here's the vision. And here's the meaning, the interpretation of some of the visions that he's already had. A period, the angel says, a period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish their rebellion, to put an end to their sin, to atone for their guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision and to anoint the most holy place. Now listen and understand. So there's 70 sets of seven. Now he says this, now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one comes. 
Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the, the perilous times. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. Does that sound familiar? An anointed one who was killed and it appeared that he accomplished nothing. I mean, Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah because he didn't bring the power and money and wealth and position and influence that they expected him to bring. In their eyes, he accomplished nothing because the son of God dying on a cross, Paul says, that's, that's foolishness. It sounds like foolishness. Even his own disciples when he died, didn't remember the prophecy that Jesus had given that three days later he would rise again. They thought he had accomplished nothing. And so Daniel prophesied saying, there's going to be an anointed one come, a Messiah who will be killed and will to have appeared to have accomplished nothing. Then watch this, after that, a ruler will rise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. The end will come with the flood and war and miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. So we've had some different sets of seven and now we're talking about one set of seven. So the ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven, but after half this time, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offerings. And as a climax to all of his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desolation until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. Now, remember we said last week that when you talk about apocalyptic literature, it talks about what's happening, what's going to happen soon, but then that's always a picture or a foreshadowing of what's going to happen at the very end. And so here we have prophecy of this rebuilding of the, the temple, of this anointed one coming and being killed and appearing to have accomplished nothing. And, and then a, another ruler rising up after that, that will then destroy the temple. And all of this happened under the persecution of Antiochus Epiphanes. When Jesus came and died on the cross with the anointed one who was killed, he, he rose again. Then years later, 70 AD, the temple is destroyed again by the Roman general Titus. And so all of this was an immediate prophecy of what was coming soon, but it also is all a picture. We said this last week, it's all a picture of what's going to happen again in the end. So let's talk about these sevens here, these 70 sets of sevens, okay? Here's where things get a little bit difficult, okay? You're gonna have to lean forward and bear with me and kind of pay attention here. I don't, I don't, do teachers still, still say, turn on your thinking caps or whatever? That, that's what my teacher said, okay? You're gonna have to kind of turn on your thinking cap, okay? Get ready, okay? There's a timeline in the app. If you have that open, scroll down to that. You can zoom in on it. Take your fingers and zoom like that and it'll open up and it'll get real, a lot bigger. You can also take your thumb or your finger and hold down on it and it'll pop up and say, you can add this to your camera roll or add to photos. You can save that timeline, okay? We created this this week. We spent hours and hours developing this, okay? So I'm gonna break this period of down with you looking at this timeline. So first of all, I believe these are literal seven-year periods ending with Christ's second coming. Remember I said we, we interpret the scripture literally when possible. 
People have said, is this weeks? Is this years? Is it symbolic? There's lots of different answers here, but all of these answers, and even my opinion here, I hold in what's called an open hand, which means these are not things, if you disagree with me on, that I really care a whole lot about. You, you could say, well, no, I, I think, because I think it's years. You could say, well, I think it's weeks, or you could say, I think it's symbolic, and, and that's fine. People who love Jesus and love God's word come down differently on some of this, because it's just, it's hard to interpret. But I'm gonna tell you my opinion. I've studied all these multiple times in school and seminary, and I've done it again over the past couple of months. And I'm just gonna tell you my opinion on what I believe these things are and what they're referring to. I believe this is literal seven year periods, 70 times seven years, which would total 490 years of prophetic history here that Daniel is prophesying. Some of it's history for us, some of it is yet to come. So pull up that timeline and let's break these verses down. We're talking about uh, 24 through 27. And so we're gonna break these verses down by looking at this timeline. All right, if you'll bring that up. First of all, over here, we got the 70 years of, of the exile. That's not included in the 490. I'm just showing you, here's where Daniel is. He's in the exile in 605 BC. Remember we said the captives of Judah were taken into exile by Babylon. 70 years later, Cyrus of Persia releases the captives to go back to Jerusalem. And so the exiles returned to Jerusalem in 538 and following. So it's about 70 years of captivity and then 70 years until uh, most of the, the Jews are, are back in Jerusalem while some of the, while the, uh, some of them did stay in the, the, the Persian empire. Some of them did stay. Most go back, they return. Now in 445 BC, we had the decree of Artaxerxes of Persia to Nehemiah to rebuild, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. This is the first set of seven, seven sevens that Daniel's talking about right here. Seven sevens, which is 49 years. Seven times seven, because remember I told you, I think they're literal years, the sevens are. So seven times seven would be 49 years from the decree of the rebuild to the completion of the rebuild of Jerusalem and the temple. So you got 396 BC, that's about 49 years. This is Daniel 9, 25. Everything we're talking about here is verse 25. So you had seven sevens and 62 sevens. So that's 49 years and 434 years. That totals 483 years. Now, remember I told you 70 times seven is 490, right? That's 490 years. So that means there's seven years left. This has all happened. There's seven years left in the vision that Daniel has. So there's seven years left. So this is the 62 sevens and seven sevens, all right? This is Daniel 9:25. This period of 62 sevens, the 434 years, comes up, Daniel says, to the anointing of, uh, uh, to an anointed one who is killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. We believe, obviously, this is Jesus dying on the cross. He's resurrected again. This is about 32, 33 AD, the time when Jesus is presented as Messiah on Palm Sunday, his crucifixion, his resurrection. You have 70 AD, the temple is destroyed there by the Roman emperor Titus that Daniel prophesied hundreds of years in advance. So the anointed one is killed. He rises again. Uh, he sends his disciples out preaching and we enter the, the church age. Go to the, go to the next one there. Um, the church age, which is also called in the scripture, the time of the Gentiles. That's us. We're Gentiles. This is the church age. This is a gap of time between the first 483 years and the final seven that we'll get to here in just a second. So this is the time of the Gentiles, the church age. Now you wanna say, if you look at a map or a timeline, right? You always wanna know, well, where am I? Okay, I think we're like right up here on this line. 
That's where I think we are. Uh, but, but we're somewhere in here. I think we're right up here on this line. The big capital T stands for tribulation. Tribulation. I believe we're right up here on the edge of this final set of seven years. 490 is the total. 483 have already happened. That leaves seven years left. I believe this is the seven years of tribulation. This starts, I believe, sometime around when the Antichrist we just read in Daniel 9, 27, much like Antiochus Epiphanes did, we talked about that last week, will make a covenant with Israel. He will be a deceiver. Remember this Antiochus was, the Antichrist is a master of deception. He will make a covenant with Israel. That will begin, I believe, the, the tribulation. In the tribulation, the 70th seven, which is seven years long, the rebuilding of the temple, we'll see, the abomination that causes desolation, mass conversion of the Jewish people and the prophecy and the vision Daniel has. The angel says, this is a time for you and your people. And Paul prophesied in Romans 11 that during this time and before Jesus returns, there would be a mass conversion of Jewish people, that they will begin to accept and turn to Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And there will be this massive return of Jews believing in Jesus as their Messiah. So there'll be a mass conversion of Jewish, Jewish, uh, Jewish people and there'll be persecution of Christians. That is the body of Christ during this period of tribulation. This is Daniel 9, 27. At the end of this seven years, the 70th seven, at the end of this tribulation, that's when I believe Jesus will return. So on your chart in your app, it probably says the 77s and historic premillennialism. That's what I am. That's my view of the end times. I'm what's called a historic premillennialist, which means I believe Jesus is returning after the tribulation. So that's called post-trib. I'm a post-tribber. I believe that Jesus returned after the tribulation. Some people believe Jesus is going to come back before and rapture the church here. I don't. That's fine if you believe it. I hope you're right. I'm, I'm just not there. I don't believe that. I believe Jesus is coming back after this tribulation period that will be a time of intense persecution of the people of God. Right here, this is Jesus coming back. This is the supernatural rock that comes out of nowhere in Daniel chapter two. The return of Jesus is the son of man returning on the clouds that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter seven and that Jesus quoted from in Matthew chapter 24. This is the catching up of believers whose soul goes to be with the father in heaven when they die Scripture tells us to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. Your body goes in the ground, your soul goes to heaven. This is what's called the catching up. When believers are resurrected, this is the rapture, this is the first resurrection where our bodies come up from the ground, they meet together in the sky with Jesus, with our soul, it's called the catching up. That's what 1 Thessalonians chapter four is talking about. The first resurrection is the, the bodies of Christians rising from the grave, meeting our souls with Jesus in the sky. It's called the catching up. And so in the millennium, this thousand year reign of Christ on earth, at the beginning, we see believers are raptured and resurrected and will meet Jesus in the sky at his return. Satan is bound and cast into the bottomless pit and Jesus establishes and rules an earthly kingdom for 1,000 years. That's called the millennium. This is in Revelation chapter 20. This time will end with what's called the great white throne. This is in Matthew 25 and Revelation chapter 20 when God will judge all people. This will be the final judgment of Satan and his followers, that's unbelievers, to eternal lake of fire, that is hell. Believers will be rewarded there will be a new earth 
a new city, John sees in, in Revelation 21 and 22, coming down out of heaven to earth, that's the new Jerusalem, coming down to a new renewed earth, and we will have new resurrected glorified bodies just like Jesus had. So some people believe, I have an asterisk on body here, some people believe uh, Christians will get their new body in the millennium. Some believe it'll be in the eternal state. So it could be either one. But regardless, this is where we are living with Jesus forever on a new earth, new city, new bodies. This is Revelation 20 through 21. All right, we good? Clear? You with me? No? <laughs> All right, that's why I gave you the timeline so you can take it with you. You can study this, you can read uh, Daniel, you can read Revelation, and hopefully with this timeline kind of overlaid with the 70 sets of seven, maybe some of it will make some more sense. But here's, here's the thing. I've got three takeaways for you because I know some of you are like, I don't understand any of that. That's totally fine. That's, that's totally fine, okay? Here's some big takeaways. And each week I'm trying to give you just some simple, easy takeaways. Cause I know some of you are like, that's way too much for me. You're doing math and I haven't done math in 20 or 30 years. Listen, I'm right there with you. Okay, so let me give you some simple takeaways. Number one, don't bow up to God, bow down to God. We don't bow up to God, we bow down to God. Notice Daniel's attitude in the presence of God. It isn't I'm innocent, it isn't what did I do? It isn't, why are we talking about something that happened hundreds of years ago? His attitude is like the attitude of the tax collector that Jesus talked about. The tax collector that was in the presence of God who said, just beat his chest. God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. The Pharisee, on the other hand, the religious guy that Jesus talked about, said he just looked up to heaven, he was in the presence of God, and he looks at this guy next to him, this sinful man, he says, God thinks I'm not like him. That's, that's bowing up to God, that's pride. No, when we come into the presence of God, we humble ourselves. We're saying we're sick, like Jesus said, and we need a doctor. And we cry out to God like the tax collector, God, have mercy on me, I am a sinner. Have mercy on my people because we are sinners. I don't know about you, but I, the, man, the one thing I've learned is the longer I've walked with God and the closer I feel like I get with him, the more evil I realize my heart is and the holier I realize that he is. And that I don't measure up. And so there is never a reason, especially for a Christian, to bow up with pride saying, I haven't done anything wrong. What did I do? Don't blame me. No. Christian, that's not our heart. Our heart is God have mercy on me. I am a sinner. And have mercy on my people, my family, my community of believers, because we are sinners. Secondly, second takeaway is this, we who are many form one body. Paul said in his letter to the Corinthians, he said, we are one body. We are many people, but we are one body. And so yes, your relationship with God through Jesus Christ is a personal, individual relationship. But in doing so, you are born again into a new spiritual family. And we who are many, in the eyes of God, form one body. And so this is how God looks at us. And this is how God will deal with us sometimes is, 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 is in this representative fashion where he sees 
the sin of one person and it's transferred to the community. Now, before you lose your mind on this, this is the gospel. Paul writes in Romans chapter five, sin came through one man and so death came to all of us. And so that's why we believe we are born into sin. From the day the scripture says, my mom, my mother can see me, I was born into sin. D David says, I was wicked from birth. We're born into sin. Paul writes in Romans 5, through Adam, through the sin of one man, sin and death, the curse of sin, the punishment for sin came to all men. But then he says, but thanks be to God because through the righteousness of one man and the death of one man, righteousness has now been made available to the many. And life, eternal life has been given to the many by our faith in Jesus Christ. If you look in our app, if you've got that open, it's all right there in Romans five. You can read it for yourself. Through one man came sin and death. But praise God that God deals with us through a representative because through the righteousness of one man, that is Jesus Christ, and through his death on the cross, paying your sin and my sin, through his one act of sacrifice and through his righteousness, many are made righteous. Jesus is our representative who takes our sin. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, he who knew no sin became sin for us for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, the gospel says one innocent man died for many guilty people. And so we praise God that he deals with us in a representative form, that we have a representative Jesus who lived a righteous life, who died in our place for our sin. And by faith in Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven of your sin, just like I do. I don't need a, want a different representative and you need another one and, and she needs another one and, or I've got to earn my own salvation and, and be right with God. No, no, no. The one died for the many because we who are many form one body. And if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, I invite you today, I challenge you today, give your life to Jesus and be born again into this spiritual family that you might be forgiven of your sin and made right with God. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Give your life to Jesus today that you might be forgiven of your sin and right with God. And if that's you, jump on our app, fill out our connect form and let us know that you're giving your life to Jesus. Last takeaway is this, and then we're done. We aren't the planning committee, we're the welcoming committee. And so if you're here today and you're overwhelmed, I had a guy at the last service tell me, Clayton, I don't know about all those sevens. Like, I, you know, I don't know about all that. Hey, that's fine. We're, we're not the planning committee. You don't have to plan all this out on your calendar. I don't know about you, I like planning things out. I like putting things on my calendar. Okay, you don't need to put all this on your calendar. We're not the planning committee. We don't have to figure out all the dates and the details and the times and the places and the names. I had someone, you know, this past week say, Clayton, if you, if you think it's gonna happen in your lifetime, then that means the Antichrist might be alive. And yeah, that's true. Who do you think it is? Oh, I don't know about that. I, I, I don't know, I, I don't know yet. I think that will be made known but I don't know yet. We aren't the planning committee. We're the welcoming committee. And so two ways I think we can do this. Number one, we welcome people to Jesus. In Revelation chapter 22, after everything John had seen in his revelation, John hears this, the spirit and the bride say, come. God is saying, come to me. 
The church, the bride of Christ is saying, come to Jesus. And so we have our arms wide open. We're the welcoming committee. We're welcoming people to Jesus. We're not standing with our arms crossed like this. No, 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 we are welcoming people. All who will come, come. Our arms are open wide. Come to Jesus. The spirit and the bride are saying, come, come Jesus. And that's our invitation to you this morning. Come to Jesus. We welcome you to Jesus. You are welcome. And it should be the heart of every believer as we await the return of Christ. We are welcoming people to Jesus. Daniel chapter 12 says it like this. Those who lead people to righteousness are wise and they shine like stars in the heavens. We welcome people to Jesus. And then secondly, we welcome Jesus' return. John said in Revelation chapter 22, amen, come Lord Jesus. We reject all the counterfeits and we are welcoming the return of Jesus, the son of man who's going to return on the clouds with great power and great glory. God, we thank you. We thank you for this revelation. God, we thank you that you have shown us what is going to happen so that we don't have to stress, we don't have to worry our confidence, our trust is in you and in the return of Jesus. And so God, help all of us in our hearts right now by the power of the Holy Spirit to join the welcoming committee. We're welcoming people to Jesus and we're welcoming the return of Jesus. And like John, God, we echo what he said. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We are awaiting. We are ready. We are awaiting your return. We can't wait. But God, we know you're being patient, not wanting anyone to perish. And so God, help us to be patient too. It's in your name we pray, amen.